this Friday. Your favorite emotions are back on the big screen in Disney and Pixar's Inside Out 2. It's time to greet your Team Riley. It's anger. Let me at him. Fear. Safety checklist is complete. Disgust. Ew, ew. Ugh. Sadness is in the house. Oh, no. Hello, I'm anxiety. I'm one of Riley's new emotions. Disney and Pixar's Inside Out 2. There's a part two? We're going. Ready PG. Parental guidance suggested. Only theaters Friday. Get tickets now. This episode is brought to you by Shopify. Forget the frustration of picking commerce platforms when you switch your business to Shopify. The global commerce platform that supercharges your selling wherever you sell. With Shopify, you'll harness the same intuitive features, trusted apps, and powerful analytics used by the world's leading brands. Sign up today for your $1 per month trial period at shopify.com slash tech, all lowercase. That's shopify.com slash tech. When you need mealtime inspiration, it's worth Shopping Kroger, where you'll find over 30,000 mouth-watering choices that excite your inner foodie. And no matter what tasty choice you make, you'll enjoy our everyday low prices, plus extra ways to save, like digital coupons worth over $600 each week. You can also save up to $1 off per gallon at the pump with fuel points. More savings and more inspiring flavors make Shopping Kroger worth it every time. Kroger, fresh for everyone. Fuel restrictions apply. Welcome to the New Books Network. Welcome back to the New Books Network. I am your host today, John Yargo, and our guest is Whitney Tretian, whose book, Cut, Copy, Paste, Fragments from the History of Bookwork, was published through the University of Minnesota Press in 2021. Whitney is a professor of English at the University of Pennsylvania and researches the history of the book, including the digital humanities and the early history of print. Cut, Copy, Paste is a dazzling work of scholarship that shows how books were created outside the traditional centers of publishing in London, Antwerp, and Geneva. I have the physical copy of Cut, Copy, Paste, and the book itself is such a visual and tactile pleasure. The layout, the page design, the complete package of this book, it's all just awesome. I am excited to welcome Whitney Tretian to the show. Thank you, John. It's great to be here. First question, can you tell us what you mean by bookwork? Can you give us an example of how assemblage techniques changed a literary text, and how does early modern bookwork chime with or differ from the kinds of textual manipulation that are common in our 21st century present? Yeah, bookwork. Um, This is a term I wanted to kind of offer to the field, not necessarily expecting uptake, but to name a phenomenon that I don't think we talk about enough with books. And that is quite simply that books do do work in the world. I think we tend to think of them as places where we store things like scrapbooks, or they are places where we store knowledge, right? You write your book and it's the summary of something that you've learned about and it goes into a bookshelf in a library or a bookstore. And then if somebody else wants to learn about that thing, they go get it and they kind of absorb that through reading. And of course, all the metaphors of reading we have over time, like, you know, digestion and things like that. But At the same time, books are actively doing things to change the future, right? So they are gatherings of information that just by their presence in the world as a kind of complete package, whether that's the codex, whether it's a book roll, whether that's a a gathering of tweets, right? 
they as that gathering, they do work in the world that changes what we think of as the space of possibility for thought, for action, for different forms of life and living. So I wanted to, I was looking for and seeking a term that that encapsulates that and not really finding one, while at the same time coming across this word book work in different places. So um, Garrett Stewart, who is a historian of media and artist books especially, has a book called Book Work, where he talks about different artist books that have, um, have used their formal materiality to make us think differently about reading the printed book in the digital age. And Jessica Pressman and um, Kate Hales and Leah Price have done fabulous work on on exactly this, how physical books do do stuff in the world. Um, And at the same time, book work you can find in the archive as a kind of term of art. So it's something that a printer in the 19th century might might use to describe what they do when they are making books, like you are someone hired to do book work. So I was interested in the ways that this term shows up in the archive and hoping to draw them back together, give it some some kind of like conceptual boundaries um, and and offer it to the field to, to name this phenomenon of how books can change the world through their materiality, through their design, through the ideas that they contain and pull together in different ways. Um, you also asked about assemblage techniques um, in relationship to different literary texts. Um, and I think that this is something that I wanted to talk about in the book um, more generally. Um, I've often been inspired by 20th century experiments in this. There's Raymond Cano's 100,000 Billion Little Poems, which is a set of sonnets that basically you can cut up each line and remix them to create whatever, 100,000 billion sonnets or something like that. Um, There are early experiments, um, like in the 17th century, with similar forms of generative literature. And these types of things um, have always interested me because they they push us to see books not just as things to read, but as things to work with, to do work with, to actively cut paste, to actively form into new things that then changes your relationship to that text. So I was really looking at similar forms of literary assemblages in the 17th century, like with the harmonies of Little Gidding, which I think we can talk about in a little bit, or um, John Bagford's albums, which were an especially um, great example of this. Red copy-paste resists the idea that book, book technologies are only remarkable to the degree that they get widely adopted or they anticipate future technologies. You give due emphasis to the dead ends, the seemingless fruitless experiments, the cul-de-sacs of textual innovation. How did you decide to approach book work through a case studies method or fragments from history? How did this choice give insight into the history of the book in useful ways? Yeah, that's a great question. Um, it started for me with discovering the little getting harmonies through um, bond of telling the story. I was reading Bill Sherman's used books, which was um, really influential for me in grad school. And he has a footnote where he mentions the little getting harmonies. I think he says it in the text, something about, you know, these books that were cut and paste at little getting. And then I kind of tracked, tracked that story through the footnote, followed up, eventually ended up writing a dissertation about these books, which are basically elaborate collages. Each page is a really elaborate collage 
synthesizing different religious printed materials. So there's engravings and emblems, there's um, printed Bibles of different type, using different typefaces, there's decorative pieces. Um, and these are all cut and then assembled into elaborate collages, some of which tell the story of Christ's life from birth to death. So they're harmonizing the four, the four gospels. Um, and I just thought that these were amazing books. And I was shocked that I had not, as someone working in the early modern period, actually come across them except through this footnote. And I realized part of it is because we don't tend still in literary studies to treat things that are assembling assembling an archive from found materials as acts of original creativity. So we don't see that as being a creative thing to assemble found fragments. We see that as design work, maybe more properly put in a history of design insofar as that history ever goes as far back as the 17th century. So I thought, what if we actually take seriously that they are doing something creative, something creative textually, something creative materially, and study them as such. How does that open up our understanding of what literature is in the period, of what texts are in the period, of what books are in the period? Um, And through using these harmonies to kind of think about that set of questions, always in collaboration again with these, this long history of people cutting and pasting things and the the long history of uncreative writing um, or kind of unoriginal thought that is actually deeply original in its, its design and making. Um, I came across the the other case studies and I started to realize that there's a, a bigger story here about the history of the book, specifically in the 17th century, because the 17th century was a moment that is, Um, still in flux in some ways in the history of print in England. It's kind of past the very early days, 16th century printing in England's not really had a strong foothold. You don't have a wide readership, wide literacy rates yet. By the 17th century, you have more readers, you have more books in print in English, um, and you start to have the rise of kind of what we consider authors, people who write for money, who write literary works with the expectation of print publication. But you don't yet have the copyright features that we have in printed books today. You don't have standard bindings, all that kind of stuff. So it's really a moment in flux. And in these moments in flux, you get lots of experimentation. And I was starting to to see that experimentation through the lens of the Little Getting Harmonies and then eventually finding these other examples. Um, and so that's, that's kind of how the project um, took, took root. Um, and then eventually it became this idea of book work and what the work that books do. In the first chapter, you imagine the craft space of one religious household, little getting in particularly vivid terms, specifically the concordance room. Can you read that passage from the book on page 37? So I'm talking about the concordance room at Little Gidding and describing it as something between the bedchambers and closets that we've talked about that sustained habits of reading, writing, and devotion, um, but also describing it as a makerspace. So I write, set somewhere between the commercial space of a print shop and the private corners of a closet, it might be best imagined as an early modern makerspace, a creative lab like those developing in libraries, museums, and engineering departments today where the Colette and Farrar women repurposed, remixed, and remade media technologies collaboratively. One envisions fragmented texts piled on tables, pots of paste and ink nearby with scissors, knives, brushes, and quill pens strewn about. 
Little Gidding used heavy, high-quality paper for its books and must have had a large, clean surface available so that the Colettes could work without marring each sheet with sticky or inky fingers. A rolling press or two may have occupied one corner of the room where the glued pages would be flattened in order to smooth out the edges of the pasted fragments, giving them the appearance of printed texts. Another corner must have had a binding press next to needles and spools of thread, large pieces of leather and velvet, marbled paper sheets for the end papers, and gold leaf to stamp with their set of binding tools. The household probably also owned pieces of movable type and some way to impress them on paper, since the printed tables of contents found in many harmonies appear to be unique to the books made at Little Gidding. That's wonderful. Thank you. Soon after the execution of William Laud and the onset of the English Civil War, the Little Gidding household stopped producing books. How does recovering this kind of space allow us a line of flight from a history of gendered publishing and printing? What do you see as proto-feminist about the output of the Little Gidding household? Yeah, this is a great question. It's something that um, I really worked very hard to make this argument because I, I understand that even using a term like proto-feminist for 17th century women is somewhat fraught and has been for good reasons. Um, but if we go back to the archive of things that have been said about Little Gidding in the 17th century or shortly after um, the community was more or less dissolved, we can learn a lot about how contemporaries saw that space. So um, we see that George Herbert and King Charles himself are talking over and over again about these books being made by the from the hands and the hearts of women. It's the handiwork of the women. Um, Charles says he wishes that he had sisters like this, you know, throughout the kingdom to do this kind of work, something like that. I'm paraphrasing here. Um, and it becomes clear that the space was known as a space where women work, a space where women make books. Um, and, you know, the, the Ransoms, Joyce Ransom and David Ransom have done a lot of work on Little Gidding and even um, been uh, done interesting work on the history of them um, being used as a kind of bindery for the Cambridge Press, which was somewhat nearby Little Gidding. So um, contemporaries really saw it as a space where women work. And then if we, we take that and we step a bit further into what early modern people are saying about women's hands and hearts and how they should be used, we find connections to needlework, which of course you're using shears and thread, scissors, paste, right? You're, you're taking prints and you're copying them onto textiles. This notion of the cutting and the copying and the pasting is totally baked in to women's domestic handicrafts, gentle women, like, you know, more elite women for the most part. Um, it would be part of the work of running a household. And we see this with work on, um, like Wendy Wall's work on receipt books or recipe books. We see this with Margaret Azell's long history of work on um, how we find women's creativity embedded in the process of making books. Like so often it's the making of a manuscript, a presentation book, a gift book, and lots of women who only recently their work has been recovered, like Esther Inglis, because she is a calligrapher who is copying out texts and illuminating them. And we would not have considered that original literary work. So we have not really considered her part of the canon until people like Susan Fry have actually recovered their work and argued for the kind of unoriginal thing being part of the canon. So I saw myself as in conversation, kind of bringing what was being said about Little Gidding at the time into conversation 
with this history of scholarship on early modern women and domestic handicrafts. And through that, um, really realized that they're doing a lot of that stuff, but um, the same kind of domestic handicraft stuff, but redeploying it in the world of bookmaking, which is super exciting because we tend to think of print shops as particularly kind of masculinized spaces. There were women printers, of course, um, but they were often widows who had taken over a shop or something like that. And so we don't often see women's like active work in the field of kind of public book making in the way we do at Little Gidding. So I was, I was really excited to see that kind of bringing together of these two wor- worlds. Um, and through that, I think we can claim that they are doing a kind of proto-feminist vision of printing. I think there's another angle that we could approach this from, which is through feminist DH design. So people like Tara McPherson or Marissa Parham have argued right now in a contemporary way that there are um, digital ways of kind of like zine making, like digital zine making, for instance, or the work on the Vectors journal, a digital journal, as kind of bespoke boutique printing that that can have embedded within it these feminist principles of kind of openness, collaboration with the text, um, uh, creativity embedded in design and things like that. And that's another way I think we can recover some of these early works by taking what's being said and done today and using that as a guide or a compass to help us understand something that otherwise might seem to be outside the purview of the canon. Innovatively, cut, copy, paste exists as a printed work of scholarship and an open access edition. You make a compelling case for transparency and openness as virtues of humanistic inquiry. To quote your introduction, our responsibilities as stewards of human data are not in tension with our commitments as humanists to participate cooperatively and conscientiously in knowledge production, to share what we have come to know and how we came to know it. Can you talk about why you encourage scholars to share the work and to share how they arrived at their conclusions? Yeah, absolutely. I mean, we were talking about this a little bit before, but, you know, Your community, when you are a grad student, when you're an emerging scholar, your community are not just the people in your department. They're the people who you resonate with across other universities, people you find at conferences, on Twitter, and so on and so forth. And that's really kind of when I was first developing my kind of my scholar, my scholarship um, as a late grad student, early emerging career scholar. Um, It was on Twitter, it was through Rare Book School, it was through, you know, DHSI or these kinds of spaces that I found people to be in communication and collaboration with. And I think that really embedded within me a principled sense that scholarship is fundamentally a collaborative and collective effort. And so everything you do is something that someone else could pick up and spin in a different way, in the same way that at Little Getting they're picking up a Bible and they're spinning from it something new. And that that is not a bad thing. We don't own the things that we work with. That's actually an amazing thing. Um, And so towards that end, I think it's important to think about our work as being in progress and to the extent that it's safe to do so as something that should be open to others to engage with at all different stages. Um, so I keep an open wiki of my notes built on uh, media wiki, which is the Wikipedia software. Um, I, you know, tried to stay active on Twitter and things like that, but I also post most of my research on H commons or on digital repositories. That's humanities commons. 
or digital repositories like this, because um, that's how I became a better thinker, right? In collaboration, communication with others. Towards that end, um, early on, uh, when I was writing the book, I asked University of Minnesota Press if they would post a help me post a draft chapter on their Manifold platform for review. Um, and I did, and it was a really great experiment because, um, sorry, experience, experiment and experience. Um, what I ended up learning was that, you know, I think we fear that when we put our work out there, especially in an early stage, somebody will be combative or either steal it or be kind of competitive or critical of it. But actually I found, you know, the people who are in my circle working on the same things, they help my ideas flourish and grow because having those ideas flourish and grow helps them flourish and grow too. Like it's all collaborative and collective. So um, it was a really, really great experience um, and convinced me along with other people who have done this, like um, Kathleen Fitzpatrick and um, also the data feminism book recently underwent an open review um, made me kind of really want to become more of an advocate in this book um, more explicitly in the introduction for other scholars to do that. Ryan Reynolds here from Mint Mobile. With the price of just about everything going up during inflation, we thought we'd bring our prices down. So to help us, we brought in a reverse auctioneer, which is apparently a thing. Mint Mobile Unlimited Premium Wireless. How to get 30, 30, to get 30, to get 20, 20, 20, to get 20, 20, to get 15, 15, 15, 15, just 15 bucks a month? So Give it a try at mintmobile.com slash switch. $45 up front for three months plus taxes and fees. Promote for new customers for limited time. Unlimited more than 40 gigabytes per month. Slows. Full terms at mintmobile.com. The book is complemented by a set of online supplements. These are staged on Manifold Scholarship at the University of Minnesota Press's website. How did this part of the project come together? Yeah, I knew from the start that it this had to be a hybrid print digital project. So baked into the argument here is that really it's digital methods and tools that have enabled me to recover the work in the case studies. Um, part of that is simply access. Many of these books are fragile. They haven't been seen by many researchers. And so just having high resolution facsimiles, photographs, things like that available was necessary. Like I can sit here and describe verbally to you what the collaged harmonies look like, but until you see one of the pages, it's very difficult to understand what I'm talking about. So I knew that readers had to be able to access these materials. Um, but also many of them are scattered in different libraries. Um, if you think about a pre-digital age trying to collate different materials from different libraries, something like Early English Books, which is the basis of Early English Books Online, the Microfilm Archive EEB, um, that was a pioneer in doing this kind of work. But really, it's kind of the only thing where you can open two copies of a book, and then it's you're opening basically an edition. Not you're not doing copy specific research on something like Early English Books Microfilms. So you, it's really being having access to mobile phones that have uh, cameras, um, things like Dropbox. I mean, really just basic tools. People think DH is really complicated, but it's actually like a lot of spreadsheets for me. It's a lot of spreadsheets and Dropbox and photographs. Like that's how it starts. And so, you know, when I was assembling this data set, I really was realizing how these tools were influencing my work and making possible a new kind of book history. In addition to the more complicated things we can do that are also super exciting, these simple mundane things were already having a transformative effect. 
So towards that end, I realized those data sets, those spreadsheets, all of that stuff had to be part of the book. Um, and that blossomed into building a couple d- digital editions. So there's an edition of several harmonies online. There's a social network. There's a platform that other people can use to make small editions of their own books, things like that, um, that are embedded into the into the Manifold platform. And I worked closely with um, Terrence Smyre at University of Minnesota Press to make that possible. And I'm really grateful for the press's support because it isn't easy. It's actually a lot of extra added work and effort on both sides. One of these resources is a graph of the social network of Humphrey Mosley. You visualize this web of connections around Mosley's 1647 publication of Fletcher and Beaumont's comedies and tragedies. From there, users can find how people connected to the publication related to the production of other books. What's your favorite insight reflected in this network? What does this visualization help us to understand about the media landscape of the period? I love that you asked this question because one thing about making these digital resources is you don't know if anyone's going to use them. I noticed that you know most people, uh, especially maybe in our field, are still very comfortable with buying the printed book and reading the printed thing, and it's effort to open up the the resources and actually explore them. We're not really at the stage where pe- most people will read things online. I think. Um, so I'm thrilled that you actually explored it and took a look. Um, I'm fond of this uh, particular little mini digital project because um, it was in collaboration with a, a student over the course of a year or two, an undergrad here at um, Penn who's since graduated named Zoe Brachia. Um, and she did a lot of the work going combing through Mosley's books. And we extracted all the information that we could about kind of the production of the book broadly conceived. So all the title page stuff like printer, publisher, but also people who wrote dedications, who the book was dedicated to, people who wrote, um, you know, dedicatory poems, things like that. Um, and as a result, we we kind of have this rich data set and network of Humphrey Mosley's publishing practices. Um, and something that surprised me Well, you know, so just to be clear, it's limited to Mosley. So we can't make big claims about like 17th century publishing broadly. But Mosley was a very important publisher who I think it's David Caston who really claimed he kind of invented English literature through his royalist publishing in the mid 17th century. And he's responsible for a lot of book innovations, um, like like really including these elaborate frontispieces, repackaging old materials with new title pages, stuff that really frustrates bibliographers today, but is really fascinating in the history of the book. Um, so, so a lot of the stuff that surprised me was how often names that aren't read that much today show up in Mosley's network over and over. So James Howell's a super great example of this. He's writing dedications to lots of different Mosley books in addition to being published by Mosley. Um, we, you know, we somewhat read him today. His book of letters is important. The letters written from prison. Um, although, you know, it's like a semi canonical work, I would say, or like fringe canonical, maybe for the super fans, um, early modern super fans. But in Mosley's network, he's actually really prominent. And I think that you can see in the network that Mosley is basically commissioning him to do some of this work, like write a dedication poem to this new translation or something like that. And so in in that, in the construction of that network, I think you can see how 
broad and diverse mid 17th century publishing is as an activity. It's not an author bringing a manuscript to a publisher that then takes it to a printer. It's somebody who's asking the printer or publisher asking someone to cut a frontispiece for this updated edition or asking there are people there are musicians, right, who are asked to compose music for books. Um, John Jenkins uh, was asked to compose something in Edward Benlow's book, which is then named on the title page. Who's getting dedications written to them, right? Who is, what books don't have dedications? Who's being commissioned to do translations? Like we're talking about not just three or four types of figures in the field. We're talking about like a dozen different types of figures in the field. Um, And that's a really hard thing to capture unless you have something like a social network, right? Unless you can actually see the field constituted before you in this, um, this particular kind of way. Another graph online color codes the different groups involved in the production of the books that mostly produced. So in one book published in 1658, a book of travel literature about Northern Europe by Magnus Olawas, the labor is mostly that of printers who are designing maps and images and such. For another book, a collection of literary works by William Cartwright, the labor titles uh, tilts toward the authors who wrote prefaces and letters to the reader praising the contents of the book. I believe there's about 53 (laughs) commendatory verses in that book. Um, What do these qualitative measurements help us to see about textual production in the 1650s? Yeah, I mean, again, great, great eye. This is exactly something that I wanted people to see in the network, but I didn't have the bandwidth to write about in the book. So I'm hoping other people can use this data and do do stuff with it. Um, really, it, it shows kind of just what I was describing, that you have a plural multimedia field as something to emphasize here. Like I know Scott Trudell has done a lot of great work on media, like early modern media in the period, among, among other people like Jen Boyle. And, you know, when you can see that engravers and composers and, you know, that kind of person is is also involved in book production in this way, you get a sense of books, not just, again, as repositories of text, but as, you know, a set of images that might be cut into a Bible or interleaved into a Bible. You have printmakers in London working on different machines who must have been then in collaboration with the people using hand press to do kind of letter press textual printing because engravings are on a separate machine. So what does that collaboration look like? That's, you know, these are the kinds of questions that 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 network raises for me. And, you know, we don't have good, strong historical materials to answer those questions. So I think the next phase of this work is really to to start to build some of these networks. Um, I know some others are are working on this right now. Start to build up some of these networks of of the relationship between people and books and just see what emerges um, through it. For me, your book raised the question about composition practices for humanistic scholars who do our own cutting, copying, and pasting. For instance, the politics of citation and argument. What might we as teachers, scholars emulate from the history of book work that you've compiled? Thank you. That's a great question. I wanted to add one thing I just remembered from the last question about the social network, and that is that John Ladd is doing really great work on this, and he has a great article in Cultural Analytics. Um, I didn't want to kind of pass over that because his work has been influential to me. 
Um, yeah, about the composition practices for scholars, I think, in, and you point out the politics of citation, this kind of chaining of how we relate to each other. Um, something along these same lines is what is a footnote? What does it mean to cite today? Is a footnote at showing your work? Is it annotation? Is it another rabbit hole that you invite someone else to go down? I think these are things that we actually need to get better at training graduate students in, um, thinking about the plurality of what a, a footnote can be. Um, but in terms of how we can emulate this kind of work, um, I think this goes back to your question about openness and putting our work online. So again, we think of the dissertation as a thing. And then after that, we think of the book as the thing. And then we think of the second book as a thing, right? Like there's this chain of discrete clumpy things you have to produce, but in and around all of those discrete clumpy things are a lot of loose threads that are hanging all over the place. Um, and I think that it would behoove us collectively to think more about how those loose threads can be productive for each other, right? I don't mean necessarily like turn that thing into an article, although I do mean that as well, but maybe something isn't an article length, but it's a blog post or it's a tweet or it's a something, right? And we can do this in collaboration with libraries. You find an interesting item in their collections and you use their social media to promote it and just have half of an idea about something, right? This is what I mean by the fragments that we're always generating in our work. And it also includes the spreadsheets, the data sets, the photographs. So I want to, um, and I, I try to teach this as well, I want us to, to think about switching our brains a little more into thinking about our mode of working as being a form of public scholarship and doing it in public collectively and collaboratively. Um, I also think that we need to think much more capaciously about how we publish. And I know a lot of publishers are working on this. Minnesota Press has done great work with Manifold. Stanford University Press is doing great work with digital stuff too. It's been a kind of slow and uneven journey for very good reasons, institutional reasons, political reasons, all kinds of stuff. Um, but I do think that we're at a tipping point and that something like the Manifold platform is fairly easy for somebody to use. Like you don't really need to be a expert sysadmin or something like that to make these kinds of sites and make these kinds of projects anymore. So what are the extra bits that we can make public through these platforms? How can we engage, <coughs> excuse me, um, you know, photographs of our work, digital editions, marked up things? How can we engage that um, embed it into our work in different kinds of ways. I see that as, um, for a long time, I think it was thought of as kind of extra, like this creative critical stuff that people just get to play with and do. But I actually see it as, as quite urgent because the humanities needs a public face. It needs to, we need to make these histories known to wider audiences. We need to connect with people in different ways. So, you know, the digital, these digital platforms are one way to do that. And thinking about our scholarship in this way is another, another way to do that. Looking toward the future, I, I know this book is fresh off the press, but have you given thought to what your next project might be? Yeah, I'm not 100% um, sure, but what I'm working on this summer is reading very, very widely in the history of different textual encoding schemas. So I've been working with and thinking about this book that was printed on a jacquard loom in the 1880s. It's a little book of hours that is a mashup of different medieval designs that was then printed on a punched card loom, which is considered um, one of the progenitor kind of technologies 
for the computer because it uses a binary punched card system to produce um, silk silk weavings. And I've been really fascinated slash obsessed with this book and um, what it unfolds for the history of textual encoding. So I'm thinking a lot these days about the deep history of like ASCII as an encoding schema for digital text, um, how our screens reproduce pixels in a photograph, um, the encoding schemas for that, that kind of stuff. And going back to the 19th century, I think I'm going to move into the 19th century more, going back to the 19th century moment when you have um, telegraphy, the, the invention of the electric telegraph. I've been reading a lot about the history of um, blind uh, books for blind readers and different tactile forms of reading, all these ways of encoding text. So there's not like a thesis there yet and not even really a discrete project, but um I think that I want to continue the idea that in history's oddball experiments and kind of things that we go, huh, that's really cool, but we don't always know what to do with. I want to kind of pick it up and show others like this is something we can do with it. We can tell a deep history of digital textuality. Thank you so much for coming on the show today. Thank you.